You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name. Rewriting the stories behind our economic and political assumptions is my game. In the last episode of PGAP, we experimented with a three-way cross-table discussion with Sue Gilby from Adelaide Chronicles and Christy Walkiko Village and Mark Allen from Town Planning Rebellion. In that episode, a large focus was placed on why Christy Walk is the exception and not the rule when it comes to inner city developments and how this is reflective of a need for systemic change and a post-growth approach to town planning. This was reflected in a recent article from the ABC who took a very unlike them perspective on the issue. The article title reads, Sustainable Development Won't Solve Environmental Crises, say these experts. Although the article does beat around the bush a little, it does imply that turning back on our exponential resource use will be more effective than so-called greener town planning designs. For urban planners out there, The consequence may be to turn away from trying to build techno high-rise utopias only to have the developers build upturned grey concrete in their place anyway and repurposing what we already have. The trick is to stop building more shit that the planet or any of us don't need anymore. So we might say that post-growth thinking is cutting through more and more, but is this too little too late? Is it really breaking through to the mainstream consciousness to the extent where a critical mass of us are ready to make the change? Are we facing a weird paradox where a critical mass is making a seismic shift but mainstream society generally is just doubling down for more and more of the same growth until the bitter end? It has been said a few times in PGAP that in order for society to transition, we need to unlearn our conditioning and come up with better stories. In order for post-growth advocates to facilitate this change, we need to become better storytellers. Facts and figures might be enough for those who are already predisposed towards the environmental movement, but most of us are still driven by emotions and engaging personal journeys than we are on big picture phenomena. A couple of years ago, I read the fiction book Entropia, that speculated how day-to-day life might function in a degrowth world. The book was really successful in making you feel like you were there with real people. I hadn't really seen this done since Ecotopia back in the 1970s. Though revolutionary at the time, the novel Ecotropia is starting to show its age, particularly in regards to a host of social justice issues. Entropia, written in 2013, by comparison, is definitely more current in that regards. Around the time I read the book, I was fortunate to attend a seminar from Entropia's author, Dr Samuel Alexander. This was at the Earth's Ethics Conference convened by Dr Michelle Maloney, who I interviewed back in Season 1 of PGAP. The Earth Ethics Conference kindly allowed me to run a workshop on population on behalf of Sustainable Population Australia, which was very kind of them. This was all just before the bushfires and any endless lockdowns in Melbourne, so I'm grateful in retrospect to have squeezed that one in. However, I digress. (laughs) Samuel Alexander's presentation was on the role of storytelling to deliver the post-growth message, which still tends to be very facts and figures based. It doesn't hit people emotionally the way great art or insidious advertising can do. So this opened up a discussion on how to connect with people on the degrowth message using storytelling mediums such as fiction writing, art, music, performance, etc. Earlier this year, as a result of connecting with Sue Gilby from Christie Walk Eco Housing in Adelaide, I was invited to attend a book launch hosted at Christie Walk. I heard great things about this new book of fiction called Mage, written by sustainability professional and Adelaide local Sharon Ede, written on the premise that what if we could feel the future before it arrives? 
On speaking with Sharon that evening, I was very impressed with her long and industrious history in the post-growth movement, including her very instrumental involvement with the Post-Growth Institute. I had a hankering that I would enjoy this book, and so I bought it that very night. My intuition was correct, as I thoroughly enjoyed reading Mage. Even without the environmental themes, Mage is a fast-paced, clearly written yarn of an adventure that reminds me of so many of the young adult fiction and sci-fi serials that nourished me when I was growing up. An easy comparison can be made to the Dan Brown novels, but this just scratches the surface. I'm reminded of the 90s young adult fiction author Victor Kelleher, fantasy writer Tim Powers, uh, there's also an imagination here worthy of Paul Jennings, and with the environmental and underwater themes, even an early 70s episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> Thankfully, Sharon wasn't offended too much by these comparisons and agreed to have the microphone pointing in her general direction in order to tell us more about Mage and why she was drawn to write a book of fiction around the environmental and post-growth movements. The interview was recorded on the same evening as the last episode of PGAP with Sue Gilby and Mark Allen on site at Christie Walk. Sue and Mark were both present during the interview and on occasion can be heard in the background in the recording. So just a heads up so you don't think this episode is haunted. <laughs> I would like to thank Sue Gilby for once again lending her 360 degree microphone gadget that picked up everything from the centre of the table with remarkable clarity. The music of Joyce following this episode is a track How Shall We Live by Mortimer's Method from the album Dreaming Backwards Falling Awake. This production is based on samples from the audiobook of Entropia, Life Beyond Industrial Civilization, which I brought up a couple of minutes back. So what goes around comes around. Enjoy. sitting here with Sharon Ede. Um, how are you Sharon? I'm great thank you thanks for, for having me along here tonight. Fantastic um, I went to your book launch a couple of weeks ago for Mage. Mm. Before we talk about Mage so do you want to give us uh, an executive summary of yourself what you do and your passions mm -hmm. in a digestible chunk mm. for mass consumption? Well, that's going to be interesting. Um, okay, so I've only recently become an author. I've been a writer probably for a long time, but my foray into this world probably began back in uni days, and uh, I got involved with Urban Ecology, which uh, was the organisation that drove the development of a piece of eco-city, Christy Walk, which we are sitting in at the moment on the Gower land in the Adelaide CBD. So I learnt a lot about eco-cities and how they are built from very, very clever people, um, spearheaded by Paul Dowton and Sheree Hoyle back then. I then went to work in government, which was an interesting change from uni and, and uh, NGO work into, into a paid job with the South Australian government working in various environmental roles, so the Environment Protection Agency originally, um, working in planning, then into a new agency that was formed about 2004 called Zero Waste SA, which has since transitioned to become Green Industries and is now starting to become the agency responsible for circular economy in this state. So I've been involved in various things like um, the Post Growth Institute. I started a blog about communicating sustainability for change. Then I got interested in the sharing economy, what I call the tree sharing economy, um, sort of community sharing resources. So I created a um, process called Share Adelaide that I've curated information stories, not just from here but around, around Australia and the world, so that people can see what that means. And a whole bunch of other things since then, but it depends on how digestible you like <laughs> the information. So on what I'm probably interested in most at the moment is really collaborative production, so which aligns quite well with green industries because it's about well for having a circular economy, how do we make things, how do we design things so that we can keep things in circulation for longer, make things more durable, how do we do that and how do we not just do that with materials but also how do we look at the kinds of 
business models that we need to do to support that. What does that mean for society? What about work? What about purposeful work? So essentially I had a year out of work in 2011 to pursue post-growth pretty much full-time for a year. Then at the end of it, I thought, how can I bring... What can I do that's the most post-growth thing coming back to my role in government? And then things got interesting from there. So, yeah, trying to bring expression to those values in all of my roles and the things that I have championed and and um, worked on both within and without government since then. And how great that you're bringing your um, passions for post-growth and the circular economy into all aspects of your life, you know, like in government, you know, just filtering some of those ideas in the wherever you are I think um it's, it's acupuncture you know it's like stick you know put put something in here and try and get the energy to flow in a different someone actually once referred to me being very good at bureaucratic ninjutsu so I thought that was quite fun as well <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's it's like how do we as government stop doing two and four and start working with like how Christy walk was attempting to do and with some varying levels of success back in the 90s so you know we've got active citizenry now that are, that are doing so many amazing things but government is not really great at sort of not all the time it knows how to do well with business and industry and local government and maybe the big non-profits and NGOs but not groups of active citizens so you know, I think we need to work out how how we can do that better and government become like a, an enabler of the great kind of work that people are out there doing but I really also got fed up with having to choose between I either get paid and I, I kind of do work I like or the work I'm really passionate about you know I get paid for and I went right I want to turn my activism into my day job as much as possible and I'm also particularly mindful of people that are still out there doing that now They're creating enormous value and not not earning any way of maintaining themselves that's the big challenge that's what uh, Michelle Barron calls the values crisis that's a whole other story so like, where is that broken value all those things that are never measured in the GDP, you know, mm-hmm. where a, um, an oil spill has a dollar value, but mm-hmm. not caring for your loved ones. Mm-hmm. So, and this is what we have as a key measure of our economic performance. I do remember Paul Downton, uh, who was the architect of Christie Walker years ago, writing a tongue-in-cheek article about having a car crash led economic recovery because it to GDP, so the numbers would look really great. <laughs> so, yeah, he was a big influence and a mentor. I really loved your metaphor of uh, the acupuncture, you know, uh, in, the, in the work that you do, and um, that use of metaphor uh, runs very well in the new fiction book <laughs> that you wrote. How was that for a segue? Now, <laughs> you can't do major surgery in government for a start, long, even if you've got a huge amount of positional power, it's always difficult, so you have to do acupuncture. <laughs> yeah. It's good that it's acupuncture, not homeopathy. <laughs> I've interviewed quite a few authors of non-fiction books and look, my hat's off to them, um, particularly Economics of Arrival, for writing several hundred pages on economics and making that interesting. But I haven't come across a lot of, I guess, adult fiction that is, is sympathetic to the post-growth, you know, certain environmental. Mm-hmm. I think the only other thing that I really read along those lines was... Um, Endotropia, I think, from Samuel Alexander. Um, so I was very impressed coming to your book launch and um, seeing a, a work of fiction that touches on these issues and having the privilege to read it since. So how did this gestate and how did it come about, Mage? So one of the first things I got to do with urban ecology, this is how far back this goes, in 1994 I went to the follow-up to the Rare Earth Summit it was in Manchester called Cities and Sustainable Development. And there I happened to go to a workshop run by William Reese, Bill Reese, who's the creator and founder of the Ecological Footprint Concept. And of course I was heavily involved in ideas around cities and went into this workshop and something just went bing, you know, that I understood what he was talking about. So he was trying, he was inventing this tool that inverted the idea of carrying capacity, um, which was looking at what is the human use of nature's renewable resources so people get footprint conflated with all sorts of other things that it's not actually doing or has ever said it would be doing. And I went to this workshop and understood, you know, because he was talking about if you put, if you put the city under a glass dome, and it only had to, and this is really related to circular economy as well, because it shows up how far dependent the city's become on far-flung locations and supply chains. And 
and you know you could use terms like even occupied territory that the city has got this invisible system that supports it that's invisible to most of us because we just go into a supermarket and get things or whatever and click online now but that city is having a footprint elsewhere besides where the physical city is so this kind of really struck a chord with me and I kept an eye on what was going on in the years and his PhD student Mathis Fakanago who then went on to found Global Footprint Network which I did an internship with them in the States in 2001 but Bill had written he'd written this paper called Is Humanity Fatally Successful? because Bill likes to ask questions like this I went wow so I was reading this paper and he's sort of proposing this idea that you know we are just going to become a victim of our own success basically because we are biologically programmed to fill every available niche and consume all the resources in that niche and there's nothing checking our behaviour like we're the sort of primary predator aren't we now the, the kind of apex species of um, being able to change the anthropocene that's what we are now we're able to change environments we're able to dominate environments and we're able to, to command those resources so and cities have become the kind of primary resource manipulated and around about the same time a whole bunch of stuff was being, being written about climate change hurricane katrina had happened then an inconvenient truth came out and it sort of struck me that the communication around science was you know very about this is the data, these are the facts, and of course, logically, we will now act on those facts. And we know that human beings don't tend to do that very well anyway. They act on, on emotion and belief. And one of the things in Bill Reese's writings was also about how this idea of myths and cultural myths, that we assume we don't have cultural myths because, you know, of Western culture is not um, based on myth, except it is. It's based on a whole heap of myths that we just have internalised and accepted that's the story. So so these two ideas were sort of kicking around in my head. But when An Inconvenient Truth came out, interestingly, for, well, I'd been writing articles, you know, on an old map classic here, or up the road at Halifax Street where the Centre for Urban Ecology was, on climate change and greenhouse effects, as we were then calling it, in 1993, and it wasn't till 2006 where there was this real sense of the needle moved because it was a film. And because uh, Al Gore had been doing this PowerPoint presentation and it had been turned into a story, threaded through with his personal story, other parallels of where science had been denied or, you know, vested interests had, had, um, had influence over it. And it's, I sort of went, it's the stories that change things. And then this whole genre of climate fiction exploded, cli-fi it's called now, um, but a lot of the movies in the like the movies in particular I found very sort of it's dystopian and it was sort of frightening people and you know, amazing kind of you know impactful cinema and, and stuff like that. But I just I'm like God, where is the book that you know where we sort it out? Like what is so what would we need to do? Like how what would that that look like? And I, I didn't end up going into that in the book quite too much, but it's going to be difficult to try and convey this without giving the plot away for people, but. So the tagline of the book is, what if we could feel the future before it arrives? So what if we could, not, not time travel as such, but what if we could feel it? Because one of the things I did when I did my internship with what was then Redefining Progress became Global Footprint Network in the States was I went to the redwood forests, and I'd never been to forests here in Australia that are high conservation value. But I'd gone to um, the redwoods, and I was standing in the of these trees and looking up and you can't see the top of the trees and you're getting vertigo and these things have been growing here for a thousand years. And it just had this wow appreciation because you'd been there. Came back and signed up with a membership to the Wilderness Society at that point. So it was like, and, I, and again, a Paul Downton classic from probably the same article, like all farmers, you know, all bankers should be forced to fly, they'll see the landscape below them and, and how, but we don't see these things because we're detached from us, we don't feel these things, so we're actually, we have the, all these blind spots because it's not our direct experience as well. And so the whole idea of this book was um, looking at all of those issues and then a, probably a key, key question from, I think it might have been Paul Ehrlich, and he'd done Millennium Assessment for the Human Biosphere. Talk Because all of these people have been biodiversity scientists and conservationists, you know, Brian Cech that runs Steady State Economy, and they all end up grappling with policy, saying, why is it, despite reams of scientific evidence, that we cannot get a sensible reaction out of the political um, system on this stuff? So, so that's an interesting question too. So, yeah, there was a whole bunch of things that fed into it, and a lot more than that, 
but that were just some of the main ones there. So why can't we get a sensible response? Because we are not reacting out of our rational approach to things a lot of the times. We are responding from a different place and hence our conundrum at the moment. Read your book, Sharon. I mean, I know it's um, tempting to make comparisons to Dan Brown. Um, for me... Um, it's a little bit more obscure. I was so reminded of the young adult fiction I was reading in the 90s from an environmentalist called Victor Kelleher, I think, who wrote Parkland, combined with an early John Pertwee Doctor Who script <laughs> in terms of, you know, particularly the Silurians where there's, um, you know, a race living underground and mm-hmm. the environmental gritty environmental themes were um, kind of funneled through an action adventure mm. and, and a yarn. And so uh, as a kid, I loved Doctor Who and loved the young adult fiction because it was very concisely worded. Mm. You could easily follow along with that. Um, Mage really took me down a nostalgic journey as well. So Well, that's good to hear because what I wanted to do is actually write something because the Da Vinci Code had come out, well, I'd read it around about the time when I started getting ideas for this book, and I was thinking, I want to write, like, and people who are environmentalists as well can often become a bit preachy with what they're talking about, and I didn't want to write, like, and I, and I knew that storytelling is the way to open the doors. I think there's a great quote about a story is a way to, to sneak an idea into the, you know, the fortified mind <laughs> of somebody. So I wanted to write this kind of good yarn that people would read and enjoy, and that's what happened to me with the, the Da Vinci Code. I read it and thought, where did he get these ideas from? And then went digging. And that's really what I wanted people to do, which has happened because I've had, had that kind of feedback. Then that's why all the way through I've kind of woven in my favourite sustainability memes and tropes just because I wanted people to discover them and, and wonder at them more, think about it. So that's when you, when you see those things popping up, that's me going... That's such a cool idea, and I want you know I'd love people to know about it. So how do you do that? You weave it into a story and make it part of the story, so it makes it more vivid. But it means that the characters encounter all these things on their journey that kind of open up maybe an idea that someone hasn't thought of. Because I think as well with you know when we work in this for such a long time, we assume people know these things and they don't always um, or know about it. Having said that, you know I had and you mentioned young adults, and I've got um, at least two people, friends of mine, that bought it who's you know, teenage sons of, you know, 12, 13 have picked this book up and been reading it. And I'm like, wow, I didn't realise I'd written a book for young adults. So, you know, looking up words as they go, um, but picking up the cover and knowing what was on the, what it was that was on the front cover, which I found astounding for 12-year-olds, and it was great. And I thought, that, that's good. So that was really gratifying to know that, you know, if people... It's almost like, you know, there's the dual layer like you get in The Simpsons with this kind of superficial level and then you know there's there'll be gags in there that only sustainability people get and some for even south australian sustainability people um which have been deliberately put in there all sorts of other hidden things that sue's still trying to pry out of me (laughs) even today so yeah it was just like if you want kids to eat their vegetables you hide it in the past or sort of thing so yeah all these ideas hidden in there for people to kind of discover and hopefully get a bit of brain food from I think it's putting into practice, like another book I read from Elaine de Bottom, Religion for Atheists. <laughs> and it says, you know, with the current atheist society that we have everything scientific, you know, rationale. Mm. And it's just boring for people to learn, and the school system's boring. And if you could have stories and bite sized chunks, you know, with the, the messages in it. Um, as religion mm. used to do, mm. um, hopefully not mm. as manipulative. Well, I mean, one of the things I want to do is create some teacher resources around this. I have no idea about curriculum in Australia these days and will need to track down someone that can navigate that and translate it for me. But funny you should say that because a good friend of mine was actually a teacher of a head of physics and maths in the school and one of the things she used to do in her science classes was do the whole thing like a CSI episode. So everybody racing to get to her class because she'd made it interesting. So how she wove that in and, and created that was, you know, you've got to make it compelling as well. So it, it's, it's a way of communicating. And I'd, I'd worried the whole time that I'd made the whole thing too complex or too simple, um, and you can't know. And when you're writing, you don't know because you can't really... It's not like a song that you can listen to in three minutes. You get immediate feedback from somebody. You're mm-hmm. trying to 
Rod or this and going, does that make sense? Is that fine? Will people get the jokes? So. I really want to ask um, where you get the reserves and the tenacity and the vigilance to write, I don't know, 80,000 words or, or however long it Almost is. Not or, much, not quite that much. But, um, um, yeah, because I write articles and currently write a discussion paper, even that. Um, you know, you're trying to put your thoughts into words and the track changes and I just want to kill everyone well, trying to edit me. Even non-fiction, even writing articles is tough because you've got to organise your thoughts and in fact if you're writing articles it's even tougher because you've got to be more concise with your language but fiction, man, like I, you know, you think you read books and you'd know how to write it, you don't and if you anybody, if you're going to write a fiction book, go teach yourself how to write it first. I did go to a couple of courses, I read a lot of books on how to write I've got notes, which is feedback on drafts from people that know what they're doing. One paid, one unpaid. Um, I paid a professional editor and a cover designer because it's like, if you're going to spend this long working on something, I'm going to make it look as good as it can be. But, yeah, it was really... Um, there's a lot of thinking... Like, some people astound me how they can just turn books out. It's just incredible. But because it was so complex and just, you know, I, I didn't... I got that idea from Bill Reese to begin with, but then the other thing that becomes made wasn't until... Here's your segue. Um, <laughs> until 2010, 2011, when I got involved with post-growth and a fellow by the name of Andrew Wilford who makes a camera appearance in the book. So this this man, uh, who I never got to meet and who, who sadly died in 2012 and is, is not going to read this story, which is a huge sadness, um, he was uh, ex-Boeing, ex-RAAF, so he had a military and engineering background, aviation background, and he was teaching up at a university in Queensland but he got involved in post-growth and he was like, he was effectively translating, you know, what green values were to engineering students. So he would talk to them in terms of um, mission assurance. So if you're going to fly a plane, and I actually prodded him into writing a whole article about this for Transition Voice, which is still online back, back to 2011 somewhere. But if you have a plane, you've got to know how much it can carry, the fuel load, what luggage you can have, passengers, how far you've got to go, you know. So that's the, the mission critical system which he then just sort of said, we, you know, it's Bucky Fuller's idea of spaceship air. So this mission critical system needs also to apply to how it runs the Earth, which took how, how he came to understand and start talking about um, these ideas to engineering students in their language, not in the language that, you know, we might talk to different groups about people who are already kind of well-versed in sustainability ideas, but how do you talk to people so this makes sense to them is, is critical. Otherwise, you're, you're trying to... Um, convey values to people with a, a lens that they don't share so you kind of got to start where, where, they, where they are but and all this time I'm attending writing courses like fiction's different because you've got to understand that it's it's character that drives plot you've got internal and external character arts you've got to understand word counts beat all the cliches out of your writing there's just that many things to think about it's quite incredible and you can actually end up in a case of analysis paralysis with where do I stop? Is it good enough yet? And then there's this voice in the back of your head going, oh, you know, not really. At some point you just have to bottle that egg and, and get it out there or you'll keep writing it and you, you know, then nobody gets to enjoy it. And not everyone will like your work, so you can't be afraid to put it out. Nobody will like it or get it. You put the people that it resonates for the people who it's for. Um, but that was last year, during COVID, of course. So it's like, oh, this work to, to get a book done. And then it was like, Fantastic oh, timing, isn't it? Oh, yeah. But I just wanted it out, so I um, published it and um, then went, now what? And it's just, it feels like a marathon when you get to the, the finish line and, and then go, oh, now I've got to market it. <laughs> so, well, you don't have to if you don't want anyone to read it. But, yeah, then there's like, how do I do this? So the whole process, if you're going to, because my book is still published, obviously, but the whole process is writing the book is one thing, but then there's a whole different thing about knowing how to, you know, that you need an ISBN if you want to do things and setting up author accounts and a website and payment gateways and how do you get the word out about it. So but a year has elapsed and because we now are in a situation here where we can do this, I thought I'd better have a first birthday party because otherwise, you know, you do these things. And not that it took me 13 years of solid writing to, to do it, but in between working on post-growth you know, getting involved in other people's projects, um, life in general, where it just... Because when, you, when you're writing fiction as well, and probably also non-fiction to an extent, 
if you have to drop something and you don't get back to it till three, two or three months later, you've got to sit down and go, now, where was I? And by the time you get into flying, the library announces they're shutting in five minutes and <laughs> you have to go again. So it, that was really what, what slowed it down is um, concentration. And, 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 and it, I got to the point where I just went, I'm not going to get this done if I just don't start saying no to everybody else and stop reading everybody else's stuff and write my, my thing. So that's what I did. And lo and behold, six months later, you know, I actually managed to kind of get this thing created, which was great. So I long as everyone else is not at the stage where they've gone, you didn't read our stuff, so now we're not going to read your <laughs> yeah, book. Go. Oh, no, to be fair, I've done a whole lot of reading a lot of stuff <laughs> and writing with feedback. Oh, of course, yeah. But, um, yeah, it, just, it was just like, oh, I need to... You have to put it as a priority. If you want to get it done, mm. you won't get it done. It's just mm. that simple. So. You only have so many hours in a day. And how's the feedback been so far? Well, the feedback I have had has been pretty positive. Um, uh, and one of the greatest thing, the greatest kind of um, bits of feedback I have had is how people felt like they were really there, uh, which was great because that's what I was trying to achieve. So this is why it's important to go teach yourself writing and read, read books about it because we tend to otherwise say what characters see or what they hear but there's also taste, smell, touch and the more you can kind of weave that in it gives us the sensory experience so when, when I, I talk, talked about what if we could feel the future feelings all those things too so so to get that feedback from several different people saying like, you know I could I could see I could feel you know um, was pretty gratifying and I mean there are always people you don't get feedback from and you're going I don't know if they enjoyed it or not or if they finished reading it or if they got it or not but um in general, pretty positive, and there's been you know a huge, you know, couple of pretty good fans and advocates for it that are, are talking about it and giving me opportunities like this. So, yeah. So in your many many years, more than a decade um, of experience in the post growth institute and the post growth sector, how would you describe post growth or degrowth or circular economy in a way to someone where they could easily understand that that's tricky because different it's like sustainability different people define it different ways so we had a lot of discussion about the name post-growth at the very outset because it was sort of like post means against something rather than for something and then all these other words were generated and mm-hmm. and at the time Donna McClurkin pretty much convened that group from a bunch of online contacts um, around that time so we said yeah we need to draw a line in the sand here somewhere and it's actually about post-growth and then I spent the next um, years on the Facebook page explaining what that was so not so much I mean there's there's post-growth and there's like beyond growth and then there's degrowth which is sort of very much we don't just need to stop pursuing growth we need to actually degrow and there's probably merit in all of these different ideas and then you get to the questions of um, if you want them to be actually taken up so there's always the people that are going to push the envelope out here and then there's the sort of idea that we'll, we'll, we'll get traction where change needs to happen. Interestingly, when we started out doing this, it was... I mean, this has had a whole whole intellectual history going back not just decades but centuries with, you know, um, on the steady state and all these other sort of thinkers talking about this stuff and worrying about it well before it became a bit more apparent. But when we started doing it, there was just this sense of... It sounds a bit kind of out there doesn't it you know, it's sort of a bit fringe thing but it's now become far more you know, this has sort of been openly questioned in forums like World Economic Forum and, and you know your leaders of governments in New Zealand and Ireland sort of making these points and, and, and not just you know oh it's Bhutan doing their gross national mm-hmm. happiness but actual West, you know, Western governments who are talking about this too now that you, you they weren't talking about this before what we understood and tried to communicate was that we've been sort of captured by this metric that was developed in the wake of the depression to sort of track the global economy and what it was doing to try and avoid something like that called GDP and there's been warnings about this from everybody from Robert Kennedy through to Dean economists like don't and including that the founder of the indicator himself he said don't use this as a general measure of social welfare well guess what's happened and so you'll see in every, pretty much, well, most you know, jurisdictions, particularly for governments, that their number one thing is we've got to grow the economy because that means we will then get the benefits of that growth. That's been challenged, you know, that's um, been challenged. Even the UN has got a definition of uneconomic growth, which is voiceless growth, jobless growth, you know, all these kinds of things where you might be growing out of little pie, but the benefits aren't shared fairly. And then there's the whole, the equity issue, and then the overall, are we fitting on the planet? 
So my report when I came back from working with Marthas before Global Footprint Network, it was even before, was do we fit on the planet? And they were just doing the sums. They were, they were doing at the time the only kind of accountants of resource use, so which is not really um, demonstrating how scarce they are using dollars, but they were literally doing the, what is this country producing in terms of potatoes, production, import, export, consumption, converting that into land area, and then um, using the, the productivity of land as a proxy for a currency of available space to sustain the resource flows that support our consumption. That's a whole other hour-long conversation, but um, that was an effort to measure are we an overshoot? Because you know you had William Caton's book from years ago about overshoot. That and it, it almost can't be, and it's not almost until you're bumping into some of these limits that you start to take it seriously. And that, again, that's related to my book. We've got this capacity for foresight and the ability to act to avoid, you know, problems. But why don't we? I mean, the book mentions pandemic in a couple of places. That's not the lens that's that's used in there. But bizarrely, we've now in this situation where we have a pandemic, and and there'd been a whole bunch of. Um, efforts done to model what would happen and how we would respond in the UK that they're all there they're all there and yet we don't we don't act to avert these crises so we're now in a situation where um, and relating to circular economy I did write a big a bit of a spiel um, a few years five years ago now called the real circular economy which is like you can have all this material still circulating and the circle might cover half the planet but if the circle keeps growing when does it become bigger than the planet? So you can have all these materials circulating, but if it's getting bigger... And then Kate Raworth has come out with her, her great model of donut economics, so you have the social floor or foundation through which no-one should fall, and an ecological ceiling. Um, I think her model may have been so successful because she was uh, using a food metaphor. I think it was. So, and I mean, we're all... it's, so, it's so ripe for you know puns and <laughs> jokes, but, but it's, that's the thing. It's simple. She's taken complex concepts... You know, and that was the work done by the Stockholm Resilience um, Centre as well to do those planetary boundaries and, and put them together and said, look, and this is what she's talked about, the safe operating space for humanity and planet Earth. That's the mission assurance. Mm-hmm. Now, these are all concepts and models and they're now starting to activate them with different ways of actually putting that into practice. So there's a whole bunch of people putting their brains to this, which is, which is great. But, yeah, post-growth, degrowth... It's also, it's also um, we had to be very specific about what we meant because, of course, people are going, oh, but we want children to grow and butterflies. And it's like, of course, you know, and we know, we know that some people and some communities, some countries have to increase their material standard of living. We know that. We know that some have to reduce somewhat. Um, so the Footprint Network used to call it shrink and share. And then you get the degrowth people that are kind of militant, like, you know, we mm. must not grow anymore and then it's like well it's about what we need do need to grow versus what we don't want to grow more of and that that's true with post-growth it was very specifically about this this attachment to gdp as a measure of well-being and planetary health and sustainability and the the cherry picking of i wrote a whole piece on carbon reductionism as i call it because it just depends which way you slice and dice and we're seeing this all the time oh the big problem is food and a meat diet no the big problem is no the big problem is this and I saw a funny post on, well, not funny, but I mean, sort of insightful post on um, social media the other day saying maybe the problem is thinking that it's just one thing you know, that mm. you have to do as an individual. And that was the other thing that really, um, particularly in government, is sort of like you know, the, the way you try to communicate how you would, because one of my roles was being in government, so you know, do these things differently. And it's like, but when you say to people, you as an individual have to make the, you know, that you should be making these changes, well, Okay, but maybe the public transport system is not convenient or accessible or non-existent where you are. Or maybe there's a whole bunch of barriers to that. So um, it is about individual choice, but it's also about the big systems that often people don't have power to influence, that do matter, that shape the choice edit. You know, like the, our agency has just put through the legislation or the, the government has just put through the legislation to ban single-use plastics here. Now a whole bunch of cafes and restaurants were doing that. But when the government goes, that's it, after a certain time, and there's a transition period, and here's all the alternatives you can use, that creates a bigger shift um, than it would have taken. But the post-growth thing is, is important because it cracks people's thinking open that what they're seeing in the news every night or hearing in political announcements, and that's why the whole you know, Clark and Dorsky about growth and then everything else is, is 
still valid today. Speaking of uh, cherry picking, I did have a conversation in a recent episode um, around population and her position was, you know, population's a bit of a red herring because if you just focus on it because it then ignores consumption and wealth inequality and then that turns into conversation about well isn't that a problem of focusing on one thing rather than the big picture like you know for example in the green new deal if you just focus on renewables and nothing else that doesn't actually focus on so much the consumption and 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 economic growth and the ways we measure it so um i suppose as a segue just to get your thoughts, because you have, um, I have heard you mention Ehrlich and um, exponential growth in the book, and um, I think we were talking about Dick Smith a bit before. So, is it possible to have a post-growth society um, with population growth? So, there's a whole bunch of elements to this. Um, people like to target certain things because of certain reasons. Um, when I had to, I wrote the FAQ for post-growth initially, I mean, this may have changed, but um, my take on it was always the, the old IPAT equation, like impact is population times affluence or consumption times technology. It does matter. Um, so one of the things that the, the footprint tool enabled was to sort of play with numbers and look at, well, what would it be, what would it look like if we were all living within the Earth's limits? And so population, it's, there's a whole bunch of vexed issues around it, of course, from baggage associated with historical wrongdoings to different groups, um, loaded very much because of, you know, it's a very, very personal thing. Um, the, the issue of, you know, do you encourage population or not? And one of the things that, so I see this, this kind of, oh, it's consumption or it's population. Well, it's both. It is. Um, and affluence, it's all those things. And right now, absolutely, there's like the golden billion, you might call them, or whoever, that are the high consumers that have got a far greater footprint than a lot of you know, you know, billions of people that don't have even a, a, a decent material standard of living. So we're already in overshoot with that. So why shouldn't these people who don't have their needs met, let alone wants, which we've had you know, the enjoyment of having, why should they not have that? And therefore, if we're already an overshoot and we want to raise that, that impact, you know, it, it is an issue. And then there's, well, you can reduce your consumption. Yes, we could and we need to. But it's not even just countries because you've got very, you've got big stratification of, of, you know, within countries, different parts of the world, they've got a large number of very wealthy and a large number of very poor as well. So Even within Australia, mm. you know, I think I was doing the stats so that... Uh, a person on you start earns forty dollars in a day. Um, your average federal politician earns forty dollars yeah. in a minute, and Gina Reinhardt gets it in a you know half a second. So, I mean, this is it. It's the inequity within as well mm-hmm. as across nations. In fact, it's probably more. So we had to talk about population sensitively, and it's like we said. Really, the things that we know that, that the evidence shows us that are going to help us address population are things we need to be doing. Not as even women's issues, but human rights issues, like mm-hmm. the rights of you know, accessibility to education and that, to choose your family size and all that kind of stuff. And the evidence shows that when women have that choice, the family size shrinks. There's also a bunch of reasons that people might have larger families, you know, where you don't have maybe the social security um, that is provided in, in some, some Western countries anyway, that, that that family is actually your support network. Um, so there's all sorts of value judgments that come into it. But at the end of the day, the planet doesn't care. There's going to be X number of us consuming X much. The, the challenge is we've got to um, address both of these things. But, you know, then the, the people that are saying, well, you're talking about population and maybe you're targeting that at the global south where the population rate's increasing. Um, you're actually over-consumed. You're actually overpopulated because of the level of consumption. That you're, but I just find it sets up this kind of, unfortunately, instead of leading to a... a a good dialogue and a conversation ends up being very fraught <laughs> things that have been done um, you know, forced sterilisations mm. and things like that so it's got, because of that baggage you, it's difficult to often have mm. a conversation about that and so we'll, we'll, we want all people the whole sustainability challenge succinctly put by Martha's actually years ago in, in my, my um, view was 
how can we all have good lives within the means of nature? And that's what the donut model is now sort of talking mm. about as well. How can we all have good lives within, within nature's capacity to provide for it? And it, the, the, the challenge is how do we figure that out and share better? So, <laughs> do, do you think there's also like um, perhaps a shift in mindset that for high consuming countries like Australia and Japan, um, where fertility is dropping, to um, be okay mm. with declining? Um, populations in those countries freak out because oh, we've got mm. no growth right because we're going to have to deal with this at some point eventually so can we just figure it out and hence this is why the models that sit under this things this the, the financial economic models drive things in a certain way you know so why why are you um, constantly looking to sell something new instead of refurbishing it because you need to keep... I mean, you even look at um, some of the big tech companies that were making amazing returns, but it's still not enough for those, you know, the, the shareholders. So there's, there's a whole question around how, um, you know, companies are financed, I suppose, if you like, or how they have, get their capital and how they work. Where is the reward for doing the right thing? Where is... The, how do we, we... I mean, we created this. We created these systems. This is not like the laws of gravity where, you know, they're a little bit beyond our control and... I do remember a great quote, quote from Russell Brand, I think it was in Revolution, where he said, you know, this is an economic system, and we made these systems, and, you know, if my vacuum cleaner suddenly went ballistic and started, you know, telling me what to do and got me into slavery, I'd bung it out the window. <laughs> and I thought, that's really what we've got to do. We've got to bung the, the, the GDP vacuum cleaner out the window. But how do you do... The thing is, how do you do that? And I think privately a lot of people who are in positions of power might not be in a position to say that publicly. So how do you break the taboo and how do you make it safe for them to talk about this sort of stuff? And one of the things I was trying to do with the book was, in fact, a friend of mine who read it, who's got, who's got a twin boys, the age of the character in the book that uh, this scene is referring to, said I had a tear in my eye on page. I said, good, that was what was supposed to happen. So you know, this whole sense of um, getting people to feel something as opposed to just because it's describing intellectually. I was just reading something today about, you know, what Adelaide's going to be like in X time. It's going to rain a bit more and be a few degrees hotter. It's just not going to ring alarm bells for people unless they know what it means for them. And if you could kind of feel that future before it arrives, then it might. might but then no perhaps one. people won't vote for a growth state anymore and growing no. state in a state where, you well, know, so much has already been cleared. Well, or how do you redefine what growth means then? Mm. That's the next question. If we're going to have a growth state, can we have the right things going? Like trees? Right is different to different people as well. Mm-hmm. So there's that whole vexed question about what does that mean? But um, we need to, to find ways for the new narrative. And So what are the positives? So post-process always tries to talk about, you know, what would a post-process society look like? How would work be? One of the things I did notice, which used to get a lot of interaction on the page when I was um, mostly doing it on my own for some years, curating the stories there, was the big pain point was work and time pressures. So if you want to get messages through to people, um, that, that could be one of them because people at some level know something's wrong mm-hmm. and they don't know what it is. We stole, a, um, not stole, we borrowed from uh, Dave Gardner <laughs> who did the documentary Growth Busters. His, I love his, Dave. Um, mm. his, um, he had a, it's, it's a, you know, a spreadsheet or a plan to, uh, to market to the different audience segments that might be interested in that documentary. So I took it and adapted it for, well, how do you talk to post-growth about, how do you talk to different audiences about post-growth? So we sort of had the allies and then the people that, the, the people that already get it and the allies and the people that are kind of silo activists, but why am I getting gains here but then slipping back? Health professionals. Now, interestingly, we had John DeGraff out here at um, my uh, orchestrating some years ago to talk, because he wrote the original book, Affluenza. Mm. So he was out here and we set up a couple of public talks. And interestingly, it would be usually the case, especially if I put it out in my networks, that I'd see the, the usual green suspects from the environment networks there barely saw a face at either of these Uni of Adelaide and UniSA talks that I recognised, but there was an overwhelming demand because it had gone out via the state government email system because it was government sponsored. So that hits 80,000 something emails and there was a huge response from health. And I thought, that's interesting. And you turn up to this talk and there's a, you know, SA ambulance officer in uniform sitting in this talk about affluenza and time and health and I thought, this is the doorway. So this is the, the way to talk to people. 
Um, they're less interested. I mean, those there are many of us who are interested in these abstract ideas and these big picture things and these tools, but what what does it mean for people is really what you've got to get back to. And I think that that was the over, overwhelming reaction is to work and time pressure. For most people, that's where they spend most of their time in a job that they don't particularly enjoy. Mm. So mm. Um, address on that level, on something that they can agree with you they don't like in mm. their own lives. Yeah, you find the common ground with people. Mm. And I ended up doing, um, out of that spreadsheet, a whole, um, well, I sort of taught this thing as a, a bit of a session in the New Economy Network gathering in Melbourne, I think it was a couple of years ago, where it was like, I'm not going to try and talk to people who already know this stuff about content. I'm going to talk about how you communicate this to others and how you do audience segmentation for your thing to make your message more powerful. So, you know, in my job, I've got to be able to talk to what does this mean for health? What does this mean for skills? What does this mean for education? What does this mean for environment? You know, so you've got to be able to be a Rosetta Stone of communication. And that's where you've got to get going. You don't, and you know, we're, we're doing this at the moment, looking into circular economy. People are doing things that aren't called circular economy, but which are. So, for example, you see the word seasonality in procurement of food. Mm-hmm. That's bi-local. You know, you spent a while in post-growth land. Mm-hmm. How have you seen it develop over the years? Has it grown? Or? Yeah, well, I mean, we always had this gag about the only thing we want to grow is the growth, post-growth movement. That's what um, I, I say mean, about that, the that, audience that, in my podcast. But the, the hashtag, you know, the hashtag that Donnie set up years ago, post-growth has just sort of, you know, I mean, he'll give you mm. or can show you how that's actually um, grown. But, <laughs> so the post, post-growth post institute itself is a, um, is well, Donnie pretty much relocated from Sydney to the US and that's sort of doing great things on the ground over there and it was a network of global activists and still is. Um, but post-growth in general, I think it's just sort of got it, starting to become taken more seriously, incredibly. I think even Tim Jackson, his books now had a 10-year anniversary. So the ground shifted a lot. So it's sort of easy to talk about now, I think. It's starting to show up in places that you wouldn't have expected it to um, 10 years ago. So how has it changed? I think um, connecting more with the idea of well-being is important because that's what people is going to resonate with people. You can't go to people... Because one of the things we were sort of thinking... People hear post-growth and they immediately think, oh, I'm going to lose something, you know. Well, actually, what are you going to gain? And this is where that connection into time and quality of life becomes more important. So one of the taglines I originally used for it was the end of bigger, the start of better. And kids, you know, kids understand this. When you grow up to a certain point, you stop growing and you start developing and maturing and becoming, you know, developing all different skills. And you don't grow, 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 like the impossible hamster. Do you remember the, um, did you ever see the impossible hamster? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> you don't, you don't, you're not the impossible hamster. And I think what's happening at the moment is we're probably in what I call um, the bargaining stage of the end of growth grief cycle. So mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we've gone through denial and you know, mm. then we're in this sort of bit where we go, oh, but we can have decoupling, we can have grand growth and we can have... And it's like, you just, we're just trying to hang on to this mm. old system. Um, but all around us there are people building um, you know, the prefigurative models and, you know... Things that are going to service as we, we do need to transition out of this in our system. It's like either either physics and biology is going to do it for us, or we'll choose to do it. And what choice we make is going to depend on how nasty things get. I think. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. So fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was really utterly amazing, and I hope uh, Mage does very very well. Thank you. Um, I had an absolute blast reading this, and I'm sure. Everyone else does, and um, I know you talked about having it into a script. I, I want it to be a Doctor Who story. <laughs> well, who knows? Well, I mean, it's who knows. Who knows? So I'm trying to work out how to write a screenplay as well. I want to do teacher resources because, um, as so many people said to me, it's it's for young adults as well as adults, and that that's kind of cool. I mean, Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling like that. You know, was writing, I guess, for a, a young adult market and then all the you know all the adults were sitting on the train reading the book as well so but sort of cross over that that generation I think you know if it could do something like that it'd be great but we need the stories and the reason I wrote it is because I wasn't seeing the stories mm. you know we need to have these stories that that's how we have communicated around a campfire social media is just now the new campfire 
if we can tell good stories, and that's what gets passed down oral tradition. You know, that's what we remember. You can probably remember song lyrics to songs that you love. You know, but could you remember the the report that you read a few weeks ago? I mean, we need that stuff. We need those documents in the evidence base. But to communicate it, we need to, and governments in particular, stop communicating to people in pie charts and start. With the, with the narrative and the story. I mean, I would even go so far as to say when you have things like the war on waste coming out on television, I think that probably directly fed into public sentiment that has mm. led to some of these plastics bans because you've got this engaging, you know, highly visual way of delighting, horrifying, astounding, you know, it's all that kind of stuff that becomes th- things you talk about, but it's memorable. Mm. You have to better remember it to transmit it, right? So I think that that really was effective in capturing imagination. You know, if you want to, if you want to get change happening, if you want to get show show that normalise, you know, your food scrap collection, put it in an episode of Names or Home and Away. You know, show the characters doing it. This has now become normal. So that's how you kind of work to normalise things with this these sort of approaches. But yeah, the story is important. What stories we tell ourselves and. And I figured, well, I better write it. Well, people have gone, oh, but your next book, and I'm like, I never want to write another book again. Now that I've taught myself <laughs> yeah. to do it, it's just, you know, some people are great at that. I've kind of written it now. I was just, I just wanted to sort of share my thoughts and my ideas of things I've encountered all through my work in a way that was fun and it was a good, a good yarn for people that might make them think after, or that actually really sparks some interesting conversations in places unknown. It would be great. So thank you for having me and interviewing me. Well, here's to better being better than bigger. Thank you so much, Time. Growth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss, and we just heard the interview with Sharon Ede, post-growth advocate and author of the book Mage. We just heard an extract of the track How Now Shall We Live by Mortimer's Method, which fits the themes of the interview and episode like a hand in glove. PGAP is made possible with the kind support of Sustainable Population Australia. As many returning listeners are only too aware, I do like to ask a question on population for each episode, and I was particularly impressed by Sharon's very considered approach to this often vexed and misunderstood issue. 
As a matter of fact, I was in furious agreement with virtually everything Sharon said in this interview. Way to go, Sharon. <laughs> if we've convinced you to buy and read Mage, links will be provided in the written description of this episode. So love this episode, hated it, firmly undecided. Let your feelings known by contacting PGAP on the contact form of the website or rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite platform. This episode is part of a series of interviews with the post-growth movers and shakers who live in Adelaide. This episode is also the penultimate episode, not only in this series, but also of season two of PGAP. Will you join me next time for the final episode of PGAP, where I say goodbye to Adelaide very sadly? I hope so. Until then, until then. <laughs>